Hello from the at the Flix team. Before we start the show, I'd like to bring some important charity fundraising to your attention. Over the course of six weeks, a good friend of mine, Gary Wood, is running two full marathons and one half marathon. Gary is raising money for both a local charity, Cheltenham and Gloucester Hospitals Charity, and for Santander's partner charity, Alzheimer's Society. Cheltenham and Gloucester Hospitals Charity raises funds to make a real difference for patients, their loved ones and the staff who treat them at Gloucester Royal, Cheltenham General Hospitals and the surrounding areas. Due to kind donations, additional equipment and items were purchased that would not usually be available. And this includes funding state-of-the-art equipment such as CT scanners and digital mobile x-ray machines, COVID-19 rapid response appeal to support staff throughout the pandemic, specialist staff member roles, including a research radiographer and clinical psychologist, and support in the Gloucestershire Oncology Centre. Now, this is very much a personal mission for Gary, who has trained hard for these events. I've supported him, and I hope you can too. Any donation you would like to make can be done online at uk.virginmoneygiving.com forward slash garywood9, and we will be publishing that link on our website along with our show notes. Gary, best of luck. The At The Flicks team will be cheering you on. And now, over to the show. Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In our latest review show, this month our reviews include... Cop Shop, Candyman, and the Marvel blockbuster Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Don't you mean Feng Shui the movie? Shut up, Jeff. Hang on, you're not Neil. Well spotted. Neil is away on his annual golf trip. I believe this week he is playing at Turnbury, Doonbeg, and Bedminster. Aren't they all Trump-owned golf courses? Yep, Neil likes to hang around with his orange friend in the hope that the talent and colour will rub off on him. <sighs> okay, so listeners, if you can remove that awful image from your mind as we return to the show. <laughs> Before we go on, don't forget that Darren's Dash is now a separate podcast and will be coming in a couple of days' time. Greetings and salutations, I'm Jeff. Hi, I'm Graham. I'm Phil, and when I'm not on At The Flicks, you can read my reviews on the Phil the Bear blog at wordpress.com. Hi, I'm Darren, and other than my work on At The Flicks, you can follow me on Twitter at Dazza Loves Movie, and you can read some of my blogs at halfguarded.com. Welcome to our new style intro for our review show, Shorter and Snappier. More so this month as Neil is off golfing with his friends. Now, I've got a quick update on his travels. For anyone who might be interested, there must be someone somewhere. He's added a course to his itinerary. Word is, he's getting a few holes in with Prince Andrew at Balmoral. Oh, oh anyway, moving on, and a quick confession to you guys and, of course, our listeners before we start. I recently watched the trailer for Spider-Man No Way Home, and I must admit, I was hooked on its premise and actually looking forward to seeing a superhero movie. What did you guys think of the trailer? Well, I'm, I'm going to confess to, I haven't actually watched it. I'm trying to avoid spoilers for some of the new Marvel films. I think the first time I'll be watching it is when it's put in front of the film I'm watching at the cinema. 
I watched the trailer, but I think there's an awful lot of misdirection in it. There's certain things that you see and you think, hang on, that doesn't link up with something else. So I think Marvel are playing another game like they did with Endgame, deliberately misdirecting us. I obviously watched it and I enjoyed the trailer. I loved it. But it was one of these things that after I'd watched it, I wish I hadn't watched it because I think with a lot of trailers <laughs> nowadays, it revealed far too much. I mean, it was almost like watching a short story. You know, it, um, and I just wish that, that, that we, we trailers that would keep a little bit of the story back. You don't, you know, it's a Spider-Man movie. We're all going to go see it. You don't have to basically tell us the whole story. It's like, if you remember back when um, Avengers uh, Infinity War and Avengers Endgame, we didn't know anything of what the story was in most films, particularly Endgame. If you watch Endgame, there's just, you just get the sense that there's a plan that they're, that they're coming together to solve all the problems from Infinity War. They never mention time travel in the trailer. They, they never show any of the um, going back in time scenes or anything. And it's great because when you saw the film, everything was a surprise. In this one, I just think that they showed us far too much of, of the story. And, and maybe they are going to, to miss directors one thing i will say as well i am a bit concerned about this whole multiverse things because anybody who watched one division a lot of people jumped to conclusions it was going to lead to the x-men straight away and 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 that didn't actually happen with just these little te- you know these little sort of um, easter eggs in there i hope people just go into this and watch the film and, and enjoy it but they're not there sort of expecting that because it's a multiverse that we're going to get Deadpool diving in and we're not going to sort of get like, you know, crossover to the X-Men universe and all this. It's, uh, you know, because unfortunately there is a very toxic fan base that follows these movies. I am looking forward to it. I, I just wish we'd hold things back. And, you know, you don't have to tell a whole story in, in a, a trailer. Aren't DC doing the same thing with their Flash movie, this multiverse approach? Yes. Sounds similar because we've got Michael Keaton's Batman, haven't we? But again, I'm trying to avoid stuff on that one as well. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah. I think the issue, I think Darren's hit the nail on the head that they, te- they tell you so much that if I can watch the trailer as late as possible, I won't be thinking about it and working out what's going to happen in advance. Yeah, people are already speculating as well that, that Doctor Strange isn't actually Doctor Strange in this one. But he's actually uh, Agatha from the uh, Scarlet Witch um, and Vision TV show because because of the wing Ooh. and thing, and they say no, but you know that that could be Agatha, and it, or, or it could be Mephisto. You know, there's already people, but which is fun to speculate. But when those things don't pay off, there's obviously going to be a bit of a backlash. <laughs> like, like, like when everybody thought that um, Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker was going to have time travel in it. Because of the other star destroyers and the, you know, that people just assumed that they were going to be going back in time in that. And when it didn't happen, people got, you know, annoyed. but then again, everybody got annoyed with Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, I wish yeah. I could travel back in time and forget I ever saw it. Um, <laughs> but I, I just want to leave on this before we go into the show. And, and I take Phil's point about trailers. Now, I sat recently watching the Bond film and there was a trailer there for House of Gucci. And I'd heard of the film. I'd not seen anything on it. And I was really surprised to learn it had been directed by Ridley Scott. He's got two coming out, hasn't he? Yeah. He's got The Last Duel. The Last Duel trailer is a, an example of what Darren was mentioning. I saw that in front of both the films I watched at the cinema on Tuesday and feel like I know exactly what's going to happen in that film. <laughs> yeah. 
Can I just say what the worst trailer for that sort of thing was? The uh, Batman versus Superman trailer, because you had a, a, a film that was Batman versus Superman. And then at the end of the trailer, not only did it show you them with Wonder Woman, but it also showed you Batman and Superman fighting side by side. So that was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, yeah. Trailers. We'll come back and talk about that, and we'll certainly talk about the last duel because it's on our review list for next month. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Right. I think it's fair to say we're all looking forward to this. I also think we should have an at the flicks group outing to watch the latest Spider-Man. In his absence, I nominate Neil to organise that. Before we continue, let's have a special shout out for our listener of the month. This one goes out for young Tom whose constructive feedback has led to our new streamlined opening. We also followed Tom's advice when he said sending Neil on more golfing holidays will also help with the intellectual content of the show. I don't think he said that. Nice one, Tom. Okay, on the subject of Neil, I've managed to catch up with him before his holiday began to get his answers to last month's quiz. Over to pre-recorded Neil. The first question, in the Matrix, does Neo take the blue or the red pill? Of course he takes the red pill. And who directed the Matrix? The Wachowskis, Lana and Lily. Neo's full name is Thomas A. Anderson. Colours of the dress worn by the, it was, I almost said lady in the lady in red training scene. It was red. <laughs> yes. So the next start of a 10, which university is Animal House set in? It's Faber College. Who directed Animal House? It was John Landis. Landis. John Belushi plays Pluto. Who plays Katie? It's Karen Allen. And who wrote the music? It was Elmer Bernstein. Which Studio Ghibli film won a Best Animated Oscar? It's Spirited Away. And the ones who got wrong, two directors and and, uh, a producer founded Studio Studio Ghibli, uh, Hayao Miyazaki and Toshio Suzuki, and the one that they didn't get, Seo Takahata. And the Mel Gibson film for which he won um, an Oscar was Hacksaw Ridge, directed it. And the last one, who directed Evil Dead 2, Sam Raimi, you got that. But who does Bruce Campbell play? It's Ashley J. Williams, also Uh Ash. Which writer and uh, did Sam Raimi turn to to get the money for the film? It was Stephen King. He rang around a few of his friends and said, back this film. And he got the money for it. Um, And when Linda, uh, played by Denise Bixler, bites Bruce Campbell's hand, what does he actually say? He says, work shed. (laughs) And if any of these are wrong, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that thing. I know Jeff didn't, but serves him right for putting me in it. All I just heard was uh, Jeff complaining. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Neil. Hopefully organising that quiz was more fun than the time you're spending with Prince Andrew. Now over to Phil for this month's quiz, who is presenting this in the style of the quiz show, A Question of Sport. My main recollection and fun of Question of Sport was the mystery guest round. And obviously we don't have video. I'm going to attempt to recreate it in amongst some normal questions. Okay, so I'm going to do some cryptic clues about who my mystery guest is in between some normal questions. Now, 
the cryptic clues will lead you to one actor or actress who has been in a number of sports movies, but the questions for them are based on their non-sports movies. And what I'm looking for is the name. So you can each give me a name of an actor or actress. I won't say if you're right or wrong. And when we get to the end, I'll say who got there first, if any of you did. For the other questions, I want the name of the film and the name of the sport. Jeez, cool. I thought Niels was bloody complicated. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's not complicated. Right, okay. So my first cryptic clue is... One of their tactics on the field is to go back and to the left. So Kevin does Costner. anyone want to... Kevin Costner. Okay. Graham? Darren? Mean Machine. I thought, we, I thought it was... We're looking for the name of an actor. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying See, to think of it. I said it was complicated. <laughs> it's Graham. Uh, no, it's... Uh, mean Machine would be my thought, and I wondered what the name of the bloody lead actor in that is which one, the Burt Reynolds one, Burt the Adam Reynolds, Sandler, like, or the Jason no, Statham one? No, Burt Reynolds. Oh, okay, fair enough. That's the only do, you one to, do you want to guess at an actor, Darren? Uh, Donald Sutherland. <laughs> right. Just out of the blue. Cool. No, no, so, I can see where he's coming from, actually. Right, we're going to do a, a basic, simple question now. Which film did Shia LaBeouf and Jeff Bridges find their zen in? I want the film and the sport. Wrestling, and it was the Peanut Butter Falcon? No. It's Jeff Bridges and Sherlebeth. Oh, Was it the man who, Darren, you were going to say the man who stared at goats? No. It's no. a sports movie. <laughs> That's a sport? Yeah. It's a great sport. I'm doing a question of sport, right? <laughs> yeah. Shall I move on from that one? Yeah, I think so. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> okay. Cryptic clue number two for my um, mystery guest. One of their best events is swimming, thanks to their ability to breathe underwater. Yeah, I stick with Kevin Costner. Waterworld, yes. Okay, I get that, yeah. Question two, I'm not giving anything away. Question <laughs> two, the normal question. Perhaps one of the best sports movies in recent times, despite it showing very little actual sport, featured a brilliant Aaron Sorkin script about number crunching. Sport and film. Uh, baseball Moneyball? Yeah, Baseball Moneyball. <laughs> right. Cryptic clue number three. Seemingly all-American, when it comes to spy games, they represent Russia as a double agent. Is this still for the same star? Yeah, this is still for the same guy. So you sticking with Kevin Costner? I was Costner. sticking with Costner, yeah. I can explain it all after we do the final no, question. No, I, I, yeah, I think I'm there, but... Well, I'll do one more question and then I'll, I'll explain my cryptic clues then. Okay. All right, so Al Pacino, Cameron Diaz, Jamie Foxx all chew the scenery in this big, brash and hugely enjoyable epic. Any given Sunday. And the sport is? American football. football. Yeah. yeah. So my cryptic clues, back and to the left, is JFK. Kevin Costner's speech in JFK. Yeah, yeah that's what I got. Yes. Breathes Underwater is Waterworld. Yeah, I got that. Double agent who plays for Russia in no Nowhere Else from Jack Ryan. Oh, God. And Kevin Costner is famous for sports movies. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was back yes. and to the left that got it. So Hicks did a whole routine on that. Back so I, 
I read those cryptic clues to my wife to say, which order should I put them in, which is the most obvious? And she said, one, she didn't get them from any, but no one in their right mind will get back into the left. And I was like, mm, I think that might be the easiest one. <laughs> so, so there you go. Yeah, there but, we go. No one in their right mind. So I was looking at Costner's sports movies, and I counted eight films that he does sports films. And he's done four baseball movies out of eight sports movies that I could find. So the four, field, are you counting Field of Dreams as one? Field of Dreams, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So Field of Dreams, Bull Durham. What's the one with the bloody, where he's the, the, the Sam Raimi movie? Oh, Christ. That one, I think, is For Love of the Game. For Love of the Game, yeah. Um, and he did one right early in his career called Chasing Dreams, which is a baseball one. So he also did Tin Cup, which is golf, yeah. Draft Day, which is American football, and I'd never heard of this one, The Art of Racing in the Rain, which is about Formula One, and he plays the voice of a dog. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I've never heard of that one either. Is that it then, Phil? Yeah. Did yeah, you enjoy I that? You, I did. Uh, yeah, yeah I, did. I enjoyed it because I got the cryptically one one. Sorry. <laughs> okay so cheers for that phil and next time i have volunteered to take over quiz duties to give you a clue of what it's going to be it's related to one of the big cinema releases which we'll also be reviewing next month do you expect me to talk no mr bond i expect you to die okay then let's start the reviews with this month's let's kick off and get it out of the way snake eyes <laughs> uh, right okay nothing like leading the witness you're leading honor. the witness uh snake eyes okay you saved my life why i'm not a murderer i looked into your eyes and i saw honor i owe you we are going home exactly you do for 600 years our ninja have brought peace to the world but things have changed i need warriors like you to become the future of the clan it's yours if you want it let's go The third film in the G.I. Joe series. The filmmakers have done an X-Men and created an origin story for one of the Joes. It's the mysterious mask figure known as Snake Eyes, here played by Henry Goulding. He is a man driven for revenge following the murder of his father, which he witnessed as a young boy. All he knows about the murderer is he used a pair of dice to determine his father's fate. His father rolled a double one, or Snake Eyes, hence the name. Cut to years later, and Snake Eyes is an underground fighter, one eye on the next fight, the other on clues as to where the murderer might be. He's been promised help by a shady gangland boss called Kenta, played by Takahiro Hira, to find his father's killer. But first, Snake Eyes must undertake a task for him in exchange for the name. He accepts, but all is not as it seems. Phil, is this an improvement over the shockingly bad G.I. Joe retaliation? Uh, yeah. Um, 
low bar was it yeah low bar um <laughs> look it, it's a hugely generic action movie it has lots of good bits and parts it just doesn't capitalize on any of them or bring them together i think it really gets by on henry golding's charisma I'd argue they do a decent job of world building and putting pieces in place for future films, certainly better than the other two G.I. Joe movies did. But it's mostly kind of uh, with with two kind of big problems for me. So the first is it's an action movie with terrible action. I'm completely fine with the fact that it's a 12A and that they need that to get revenue for a larger audience. The problem with that is, is a lot of the fighting is with samurai swords, so we're not going to see a realistic bloodletting or limbs flying. This isn't Kill Bill. But does that really mean that we have to have the shaky cam and frenetic editing stuff? I, mean, I posed this question to someone else when I watched this, and I said, is there anyone in their right mind who comes out of a film like this and goes, I absolutely loved that super choppy editing, as opposed to <laughs> I have no clue what was happening right now in this fight scene? I, I don't get it. I mean, and I always wonder, and I'd love for somebody more knowledgeable than I to tell me, is it because they didn't have enough time to film it, so they just did lots of coverage shots and cut it together? Is it because there's a lack of skills behind the scenes or a lack of physical ability in front of the camera? Or is it actually because they think people like that? I don't I think it's all of the above. It looks cool, and they've got some great costumes and stuff, but... I mean, when it's an action movie and you don't really understand what's happening in the fight scenes, it's pretty bad. And the other thing is they included the Baroness, which was um, an actress called Ursula Corbero, and Scarlet, who is the brilliant Samara Weaving. I'm sure Jeff will be talking about Oh, I will. Um, (laughs) And those characters have literally no reason to be in the film other than... They're trying to world build for future G.I. Joe films. Their like purpose in the film is completely superfluous. And also their acting in the film is completely different to everybody else. I really enjoyed it, but they were they were both ridiculously camp and over the top. Whereas everyone else was like really deadly serious in like a sort of Blood Brothers sort of action film kind of thing. And it's just odd, like I kind of have the minute and have them do more or don't have the minute and cut 30 minutes from the film. So yeah, overall, yeah, it was all right. (laughs) It's fine, but there's a lot of other good things you can watch. I'd be very interested to see whether it actually spawns any sequels. Yeah. I don't think it's been that big a hit, has it? Um, Oh, good. Whether that will mean the end of this now, but then again, I thought, retaliation would have meant the end of it, but they still brought it back, Phil. Would you see this as, it's not a continuation, is it? They've kind of forgotten, they kind of sort of brushed those ones under the carpet, haven't they? Yeah, well, what can you say about a film where the lead actor from the first film insists he's written out and killed within the first five minutes of the bloody sequel? <laughs> wow. It's shocking. It says anyway. itself. Graham. Oh, yeah, God, this was terrible. Uh, They call the film Snake Eyes because it sounds edgy and cool and vicious, but snakes do indeed have two eyes, but so do turkeys, and this movie was not for me. I haven't seen Rise of Cobra or Retaliation, and quite frankly, 
after this film, I have absolutely no intention of ever watching the other two. Rise of Cobras, all right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure who these films are aimed at. Is it six-year-old boys who play with G.I. Joe toys, or is it people who find proper martial arts films too challenging? The fights, I agree with uh, Phil, the fights seem very slow on the, and to use a technical fighting term, half-arsed. A fight in a good martial art film will throw you back in your seat, a leap off the screen, and you'll find yourself on the edge of your seat. I mean, I had no engagement with any of the fight scenes in this movie. Watch Enter the Dragon or Owen Back or The Raid to see how it's done properly. Or if you've three hours to kill, you could watch A Touch of Zen, the template for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It's the speed and the total commitment in those films that make them special. I mean, my principal issue with Turkey Eyes was the fight scenes. They felt static. I really thought the camera was nailed to the floor and they just chopped everything up they they filmed. In a good Hong Kong movie or a more traditional Chinese movie, the camera moves and flows with the action, pulling you into the fight. This movie just felt stiff and flat. Every fight seemed to start with the tip of the sword being drawn across the ground as the fighters measured up to each other. And then one, two, three, action, and the fight starts uh, with choreography that reminded me of the 1973 version of The um, Three Musketeers. It was terrible plot was just shocking. I mean, they started with a sort of Batman origin story, moved on to the redemption and revenge part of the story. Did anybody notice that it's like the main character does a good deed, gets rewarded, and then immediately does a bad thing and becomes an asshole, and then he does another good deed, and his friends forget that he was an asshole, and they reward him again, and then he becomes an asshole again, and then he does another good thing, and these friends forget that he's a double asshole. Oh, jeez. There were some things I did like. I did like the giant snakes. I thought they were big, silly fun. And the CGI team on Jungle Cruise could learn a thing or two from these guys, CGI. Oh, and Phil, I went back and looked at Proxima the Murder Cat again, and I have changed my opinion. (laughs) Disney have a trading card game on the iPhone and uh, Android called Sorcerer's Arena. Uh, In the game, you can play Frank Wolf and Proxima the Murder Cat. And the CGI on the phone is way better than in the movie. (laughs) I mean, she actually looks scary in the arena. So in summary, I'd just say this was not my cup of green tea. This film was less Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and more Squatting Turkey, Sniffling Hamster. Well, this film's not cutting it. Let's go over to pre-recorded Neil. (laughs) Well, the other G.I. Joes have been absolutely terrible, but this wasn't that bad. The fight scenes, though, can no one be trusted to do three or four seconds of fighting without 15 jump cut. Henry Golding loses his father and gets trained up by a man who turns out to be a... Wait a minute. That's Batman Begins. There's also a storyline where Snake Eyes is determined to kill his father's... Damn it, Batman Begins again. A 12A movie about the Yakuza. Yep, this is getting worse the more I think of it. Ikauwe is in it, briefly, the star of the raid, wasted. Samara Weaving's in it for some reason. She's given little to do. This has franchise revenue stream written all through this film. And it's bland, and frankly, I should have watched Batman Begins again. Thank you, Neil, for those valued insights. Darren, what do you think? I thought this was absolute tripe. 
there is so much potential for a, a GI Joe movie, or as it was known in the UK back in the day, Action Force. There's so many colourful characters in, in the source material. Uh, so you can make a fun action movie out of it, or you could have a, a really intriguing um, grounded story based on, um, on the Cobra organisations. There's so much you could draw on. And I've got to say, um, um, just to show what my threshold is, how easily pleased I am, I actually thought the other two G.I. Joe movies were, were okay. I, I like Rise of Cobra. Retaliation had its moment. But the things about those films is they had lots of sort of like, you know, really distinct, colourful characters. And, and this one didn't. It was absolutely bland. It was painfully colourless in terms of all the characters. And it was also one of the darkest movies I've seen in ages. And when I say dark, I don't mean to tonally dark or edgy. It just felt at times like you were like sat in pitch blackness. It, it, you know, it, <laughs> And there was a couple of times in the movies where, where in, particularly in the action scene on the um, on the motor or freeway or whatever it is over there, where you get a character say something like, "Did you see what he did? Then he flipped over and he, you know, he, he did that to help us and stuff." And I think the reason why they actually edited that voice in to try and explain what was actually happening because they couldn't edit it, so you could actually <laughs> see. It. I actually do believe that because you know the, the, the scenes were just so awful and got a martial arts movie where you've got the, you know the two of the most popular GI Joe characters who are known for martial arts and the martial arts were absolutely appalling you couldn't see what was going on they were bland in this day and age I'm not saying that every film has to be like the raid or um, John Wick or anything or like the Daredevil TV series but in this day and age trying to do a, just a really like you say a half assed fight scenes yeah it, it's, it's unforgivable you know, I, I, as anyone who, who um, uh, ever listens to me on this thing knows, I have a real soft spot for B-level uh, action movies, the sort of things that you get on streaming, on you know, straight to streaming, like and like on Netflix, Amazon Prime. I saw a film the, the other week called Kate, and these aren't great movies, but the one thing that they do is they really spend the time to give you well choreographed fight scenes and action and stuff, you know, that is a bit breathtaking. And this didn't do any of that. I really hate to tear into a movie because I realise that, you know, how much work goes into it. Even a bad movie, a lot of work goes into it. But this was just appalling. It's not going to please G.I. Joe fans. It's not going to please people who just came in wanting an action movie. I thought it was absolutely awful. I think it was the first G.I. Joe movie. There was a like a small flashback of, of Snake Eyes and, um, and Storm Shadow's relationship as kids. And in that like two-minute segment, they told a better, more poignant story than this did at all. I, I thought it was absolutely dreadful. And um, the, the only thing I, I would say about it is the uh, the, the interactions between um, Scarlet and the Baroness. Uh, I, I thought there was some a little bit of potential there, but the rest of it was awful and just absolutely corny. There's a scene where all the characters like team together and like you know walk together as one, and it's supposed to be this rousing everyone's together moment. And I just thought it was corny as hell. I saw Mortal Kombat a few months ago and I thought that's going to be the worst time I've had at the cinema this year. I was wrong. I saw this one. I get the distinct impression this is not going to get the Add the Flicks Film of the Month award. <laughs> <laughs> now, I saw after G.I. Joe Retaliation that I would never watch another one of these ridiculous movies. And I think everybody's backed me up on this so far. 
although I'm a bit worried that Darren found something in retaliation to like, but we'll discuss that off air. Now, you know me, guys. I like to be positive when I do, <laughs> when I do a review. So I'm going to throw in some good news. It is better than retaliation. The bad news is, as everybody said, it's a boring concept, poorly executed. And the poor concept, create an original backstory for the character who never talks and has little interaction with the others. Nice one. That's how you engage with an audience. And what makes it worse, you see as it develops that they could have made an entertaining feature. And people have hinted at this. And Phil, you're right. I'm going to talk about Samara now. (laughs) It should be a movie about a Joe, and it's spelled it J-O. Get it? Female. Uh, Scarlet, the always excellent and wonderful Samara Weaving, and the nemesis Baroness. They're just tremendous. These two actresses know how to play this piece. Lashings are sardonic and no in humour. Whenever they're on screen, the movie lights up. Although how the Baroness can walk in those shoes without breaking an ankle, let alone fight, is beyond me. I mean, did you see the heels on that thing? Um, As for the supposed star of the movie, Henry Goulding, well, he's badly miscast. Goulding is a great comic actor. He could be the Cary Grant of this generation. I loved him in Last Christmas. Instead, he picks this toy action nonsense. He's just not believable. He's disinterested and he's bland. He's also undone by the terrible direction from uh, Robert Schwenkel. Schwenkel, I think. It gives a toss, really. I, he doesn't care about the film. I don't give a toss about his name. He isn't even trying. For an example, let's look at that sequence of Scarlet and the Baroness where they're in the same frame. Now, both the middle frame, and it shifts focus when, on whoever's speaking. There's no camera moves. There's no edits. For this to be effective, really, they should be at opposite end of the frame and use an in-depth focus. Couldn't even give a toss about that. So if the filmmakers don't care, why should I? Now, I vow never again to watch another G.I. Joe film, unless Samara's in it. And I'm sure listener Frank backs me up on that, although he just might be interested in any woman wearing those extreme high heels. Oh, dear. Oh Lord. Okay, Frank? <laughs> I was going to say, on, on that note, which of the, the old ones is the one with Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the evil Cobra leader? Because that was the one that I thought was quite funny and good. The first one. Because that was properly like silly and camp, wasn't it? I thought that was a good twist in there. I, I, I've given it away, though. Yeah, but but that was a really good sort of James Bondian sort of, you know, over-the-top action, but a great deal of fun. And with a good star cast. I really enjoyed the first one. But that's where I thought this one was really weird because the Baroness and Scarlet were doing that over-the-top camp thing from the yeah. first two films and everyone else was doing the Batman Begins steadily serious stuff. It was a bit weird. Anyway, I think it's fair to say the movie review quality must improve after this. Snake Eyes, <laughs> if you really want to see it, is in cinemas and also on VOD. What? we've got here is failure to communicate. Next up, after last month's excellent boss level, which is my film of the month and Graham's film of the year, we have another (laughs) film from director Joe Carnahan, Cop Shop. So why were you looking to get locked up, Theodore? Everyone's trying to kill me. What'd you do? I did what I had to do. 
to get to you, Teddy. The legendary Bob Vidic. You're a psychopath. I'm a professional. You pissed off the wrong people. I'm gonna kill you. Drop that gun. No one kills anyone in here. How bad is it? Are you an idiot, Teddy? Anthony Lamb. I'm going by the more friendly and less formal Tony these days. Clear off my contract. No can do. This contract is free fire, as there are competing parties for one Theodore Moretto. Bob, are we going to duel to the death? Here they come. Let's make a deal, man. I got a lot of money. There's no deal to be made. Come on, Teddy. You know how this goes. I need to know everything. All you have to do is let me blow his head off when I had the chance. I'm coming in there whether you like it or not. Now you see the difference? That is a psychopath. Now, I'll present this synopsis in Graham speak. (laughs) The Frank is Teddy Moretto, a mob con man with dodgy hair, now on the run from his former employees. Desperate to protect himself and his family, Teddy gets himself arrested so that he can get protection and time to plot his next move from inside a local Nevada police cell. Unfortunately, hired hitman Bob Vidict, the Gerard, correctly guesses what Teddy is planning. So he also gets himself arrested on a misdemeanor in order to end up in the same police cell. Once he accomplishes this, Vidict's plan is to kill Teddy and disappear ASAP. What Vidic or Teddy don't count on is the tenacity of young policewoman Valerie Young, played by Alexis Lauder, in protecting them, and a psychopathic killer who also picks up the contract to kill Teddy. The Gerard and the Frank together. This must be one of your top films of all time, Graham. Well, just to surprise you, it is. I thought this was an absolute gem, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the Gerard or the Frank. Uh, In fact, were they in this? Sometimes the hero of a story can shoot themselves in the foot. In this movie, the hero of the story does something much more painful. I mean, Alex Lauder was a knockout in this very Hong Kong-influenced action thriller. It also has the Frank Grillo and the Gerard Butler as supporting cast, but this is Lauder's film, with Toby Huss providing a wonderfully deranged contrast to the cookie-cutter criminals of Grillo and Butler. Yeah, I wasn't expecting much from this film, i got to be honest, as I went into the cinema about 15 minutes in and I was hooked. Great writing wonderful pacing and interesting characters. Characters you you could just engage with. It it, it was just excellent. And you just understand everyone's motivations. However, it's the setting of the film I thought was really genius. An isolated desert police station late in the evening with a skeleton crew of officers engaged in petty internal office squabbles and friendly colleague rivalry. The setup is just superb, and every nugget of information you get in those first 15 minutes pays off in the final act. It was just so well put together. I said at the start that this is a newcomer Alex Lauder's film, and I'm struggling to think of another film where one of the supporting cast has so completely stolen the film from under the noses of the two leads. She's exceptional in her role as a smart cop surrounded by average cops. 
she is the exception to the rule and she is the only one of all the cops in the cop shop to work out that something is not right about the two seemingly petty criminals that she's just locked up. Louder, as Officer Val Young, don't call me Valerie, is a force of nature and a force for good. Well played, rough, tough and yet oddly touching. I was really, really blown away by her. And as we move into the third act, she is the only one we care about. She is the film, I think. This was a brilliant piece of storytelling and plotting. The location, the characters, dialogue, all work together. Like the movement of a Swiss watch. This was a proper two hours of grown-up entertainment. I was entranced, transfixed, and on the edge of my seat right up until the end. I cannot wait this to come out on streaming so I can watch it again with my wife. Uh, Darren, I was thinking of watching it on a Friday night. Uh, chicken tikka masala. Is that one bottle or two bottles of Cobra beer? I'm not sure what the rules are. But it reminded me a bit of Bad Times at the El Royale and many Hong Kong movies. The relentless nature of the peril, the pain, the suffering, the oddball ending. Great cinema, great film. And I loved being in On the Birth of a Future Star. Yep, I gave it an 8.5 out of 10. Uh, before you go into your review then, Darren, he directed some questions at you there. Do you want to <laughs> pick them up? <laughs> You're the man who says Friday night you've got to have a beer and watch your film. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, particularly if you're not work, working the next day. Yeah, a couple of beers and a... Uh, <laughs> a, uh, a, a nice enough um, little sort of, you know, fun movie. You don't, you don't, you don't want Shakespeare on a Friday night. Let's face it. Unless it's Hamlet, sorry, Mel Gibson. <laughs> God. Although the new Macbeth looks really good with Francis McDormand in it as Lady Macbeth. That looks intriguing. Okay, well that shot that down in flames. Then Darren, let's go. In, let's go to your review. Uh, yeah, I mean this one. The, the story to this, with the self-contained lo- location and, and everything, and the colourful characters, it reminded me a lot of a lot of the B movie type movies that I I actually watch and enjoy. But with this one, you obviously a lot better writing, directing, the storytelling was a lot better, and, and the filming, and, and also the um, the performances. So it was kind of like it was almost like a tribute to those sort of like sort of cheap movies, but done really, really well. And it's the sort of film that I liked, and so I did enjoy it. But the double edge to that is because it's a sort of thing that I'm so familiar with. While, while I did enjoy it, I wasn't blown away because I've seen this sort of film, particularly with the climax when everything goes crazy. I've seen it so many times mm. before. But the thing that I really did like about this, that I think they did really well, was the the, uh, the built the tension. Great. They actually came, you know, when the madness started. It wasn't just all sort of constant shootout. You actually had a real dilemma of sort of um, who the um, Alexis Louder, who incidentally, I totally agree with Graham. I thought she was absolutely wonderful in this. And she actually, her character was so likeable and charismatic. And, and it was important you had somebody like this in, in this film because amongst all these villains, she was the one you were rooting for. When she mm. got injured and shot it really raised the stakes. And I mean, I mean, imagine that, the fact that, you know, if somebody actually gets injured in a film and looks like they might actually die, it actually makes you more invested. What a concept. Uh, so, and yeah, and the, her whole thing where she's trying to figure out who who, who is she going to trust? She's almost in a completely impossible scenario. Should she fight her way out? Should she trust one guy or the other? It, it was, you know, it, I think that tension part of that, that, that sort of did really ele- elevate this 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 film. 
and there were some great characters throughout. I mean, the um, the, the serial killer, the uh, Anthony Lamb, and uh, Anthony Lamb serial killer. Get it? Get it? Um, <laughs> yeah. This, yeah, he brought the, the right level of sort of psychopath in. But you had these sort of like hard hard nosed characters, but you had somebody who was even more dangerous and scary than then. And this sort of this little like underworld of assassins with this like assassin code and these like things going on in the background. You know, I, I really enjoyed that. The one thing that I, I will say is I did even though you say it, it uh, you thought it was paced well, I did think a film of this nature, I think going on for two hours is probably a little bit too much. I thought there were quite a few times when it seemed to be sort of going over the same sort of ground. And I think a, a crisp 90 minutes or 100 minute movie would have been a lot more palatable. And I think the, the craziness at the end with the shootout what was great, but I think I would have been more blown away by it if I, if I hadn't been sat there for, for so long. I think maybe just a, a little bit trimmed in some ways would, would have benefited this film. And I have to say, how it left off, I, I would actually be happier if they came back with a sequel for this, particularly because, like I say, uh, Alexis Lauder, her character, there's, I just think there's so much more you could get out of her. You know, she basically made the film. Drop that gun. No one kills anyone in here. I mean, the one thing with Cop Shop that really got me is I sat in my seat. I was, you know, I'd got through the three hours of adverts we have to put up with. <laughs> and um, then it comes to the main titles. And I'm just bolt upright. They were using Lalo Schifrin's opening title for Magnum Force. That's a yeah. Clint Eastwood film, Phil. <laughs> and, thank you, um, thank you. That's all right. <laughs> and it sent out a clear musical intent. Because after that, Clint Shorter picks up the ball and bases his entire score around that classic 70s theme. Now, why is that important? You know, most people don't even notice the music because it tells you that director and co-writer Joe Carnahan is making a throwback anti-hero movie. All this Hong Kong nonsense that Graham said, forget it. It's a <laughs> 70s American film. Now, given that feel in this setup, you know it's going to be a wild ride. I mean, just which of these characters can you trust? And indeed, as the story developed, allegiances swap sides with one barking mad exception. Enhancing the script, there are some really fine performances. Graham will be adamant that this is the best the Gerard's <laughs> ever been. However, the real star and number one reason to see Cop Shop is an amazing performance, and I'm not saying it first, from Alex Lauder. Again, taking the music as the guide, her role is a no-nonsense cop in a direct throwback to such characters as Clint Eastwood, remember him film, from <laughs> Dirty Harry. Now, there, there are other good performances in this movie. Toby Huss as the psychopathic hitman who's already been mentioned. So you have an anti-hero movie that would not be out of place in the 70s and performances to match. Yet, it's more than just that. There are references to 90s movies as it goes on. There's some entertaining Tarantino-esque dialogue mainly from the Gerard, and in sequences where Grillo walks around a burning police station with his long hair flowing, to me, it invoked visual references of the usual suspects. Mm. Yet, sadly, Cop Show does have a flaw, and Darren's already picked this up. It wants to be a lean 70s action thriller, but has too much exposition. Ideally, this should clock in at around 90 minutes, as though it were part of an old-fashioned double bill. Lose that and you have a throwback classic. 
Well done, Joe Carnahan. With this and boss level, you have revealed yourself to be the king of the bees. You take a B-movie plot and turn it into something extremely interesting. I can't wait to see what you have planned next. Hopefully with something for the Mel to keep Graham happy. God. <laughs> and now let's go to pre-recorded Neil. A 70s inspired, especially the Magnum Force opening music actioner that was really enjoyable until the final 15 minutes. What a load of tosh. Frank Grillo and Gerald Butler are in it, but they are completely outshone by the magnificence of a newcomer, Alexis Lauder. Wow. She steals scenes. What? Sorry, she stole the film. And hopefully Messrs. Grillo and Butler were well paid because they have been owned by a newbie. She was compelling. She had charisma. She has presence. And maybe the other two need to retire immediately. Toby Huss has the role of a lifetime playing a psychopath. There's genuine tension there. Two hours of Alexis Lauder and some other people. Money well spent. In fact, I'd be happy to watch her. I mean, the film again, she surely has a great future. This was great fun. Thank you, Neil, for those insightful comments. Phil, <laughs> over to you. Hmm. Um, you've left me last because I'm probably the least enthusiastic yeah. about this film. I, I didn't think it was bad. I just, I just don't like it as much as any of you guys do. So I thought it was really interesting and I mostly enjoyed myself. I think it's really choppy and peculiar in, in the way that it's paced. So it doesn't break into my Joe Carnahan top three. For me, you know, Narc, The Grey and Boss Level are his best films. It reminds me more of Smoking Aces, which is one of his other films. And the reason it reminds me of that is because of the outlandish characters and the odd humour. Well, the problem for me is I didn't really like Smoking Aces. I didn't really click with this either. But the reason I kind of put it out there is I think that if Smoking Aces is something you enjoyed, this is absolutely for you. Because it's not a bad film. It's just that it's not something that I totally clicked with. I really enjoyed the setup. It's quick and it's to the point. I really enjoyed the 70, 80s B-movie tone. You've all kind of said it. It is too long. And I thought that the gear changes were really crunchy. So it's slow burn, slow burn, slow burn, insanity, and then has a weird ending. And it's just like, (laughs) I was just like, ah, that slow burn for me just kind of went on a bit too long. And then when it switches to absolute madness, and you have to admit, the sort of 20 minutes just before the quirky ending is bonkers. Like, there was just too much slow burn before that. It's almost like slowly clicking up a roller coaster, slowly, slowly clicking up, and then it's like down you go, and it's just crazy. And I didn't really feel like the quirky ending was earned. It was just, I don't know, that was really weird. But... I you know, repeat everything you said. Alexis Lauder is absolutely brilliant. And I really enjoyed the fact that she was there because Joe Carnahan movies are just testosterone fueled all the way through, aren't they? They're like big brash bloke movies. Grrr. And I thought that it was nice to actually have Alexis Lauder there front and center. And I think Graham said it right at the top. As far as I'm concerned, she was the star of the film. Just because she's new, she's not top billing, but you know, she is the star of the show. So, yeah, it's a a good film. I just didn't quite click with me, I'm afraid. 
Um, I just want to pick up on something you said there, because funny enough, I didn't like Smoking Aces. That's one of his few films that really didn't click with me at all. And I felt he was trying to be too much Tarantino with Smoking Aces. Whereas, you know, bringing in some of the dialogue and all of that 90s stuff in with the 70s clash that he brings into Cop Shop really worked, where it didn't work in Smoking Aces. Oh, I agree it didn't work in Smoking Aces. <laughs> I mean, I didn't enjoy Smoking Aces. I didn't feel that it, it tonally, again, felt all over the place to me. Yeah, and it, it's an awful yeah. film. Um, I like smoking. And this is better. There you go. And and you enjoyed this, right? So, yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I did enjoy myself. I just don't. I think that I just I want to warn people that there are some caveats to it. Darren, you were saying on smoking aces there. Yeah, I'm just saying I uh, I actually did enjoy smoking aces. It just you know it was just a a fun bonkers movie with lots of. Weird characters that basically all have a big battle royale. I, I, I had a blast with it. It's funny, yeah. It did, it's just the characters didn't work I, for me. Um, whereas in in this in Cop Shop they really did. It, that that's really interesting. I made that comparison, but uh, I think that's a fair one. However, returning to Cop Shop, Joe Carnahan has directed another winner. Despite some editing interference in the last few days, Frank Grillo has come out and really slated the cutness out in the cinemas. Mm, really not happy with, yeah, he's not happy with it at all. He said he'd done a great performance, and he was really happy with what Joe Carnahan had produced in his cut, and then the producers altered it. So well, That's interesting. Yeah. Release the Carnahan cut. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say what Frank Grillo actually said, but Graham would cut it out, so it's not even <laughs> worth it. But have a look at his tweets on the subject. They are, they are He does not hold back on uh, what he thinks of the film in its current form. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Smells like victory. So Cop Shop, if you want to check this one out, is currently shown in cinemas. Hopefully there will be a sequel. Now a sequel currently going the rounds is Candyman, the subject of our next review. This is where it all began. The story of Candyman. Local character, he walk around handing out candy to the neighborhood kids. One day, a couple of kids get razor blades in their candy. Police come around. That's when I saw the true face of fear. Get on your knees. Hands, hands, hands. They beat him, tortured him, killed him right there on the spot. A couple weeks later, more razor blades and more candy. He'd been innocent. So he's real. Candyman ain't a he. Candyman's the whole damn hive. Confession time, lads. There's no way I was going to watch this. But at least I am here to admit it, not run away on a golf holiday with some real-life horror characters like Neil. Right, Candyman is set almost 30 years after the events of the first film. Once a slum area and the locale of the first film... Cabrini Green in Chicago is now very upmarket. One of its inhabitants is painter Anthony McCoy, played by Iyaya Abdul-Mateen II, who is currently looking for inspiration for his art. He finds it in the story of a serial killer who struck back in the 1990s. As Anthony investigates further, he uncovers the legend of Candyman. However, his artistic inspiration reawakens the horrifying supernatural killer 
a killer to which Anthony has a past connection. Jeff, would you like to provide us with your famous Neil impersonation to give your artistic impression on how he would have reviewed Candyman? Well, it was scary. (laughs) I had to have the light on for two nights after. But thankfully, Teddy was with me. I wouldn't watch another. Oh, you're dead when he gets back. (laughs) Phil, over to you. Thank you, Neil, by the way. Uh (laughs) So I think, um, contrary to the last one, you've put me up top because I think I like this the most out of those of us who chose to watch it. Graham mentioned it's a direct sequel to the 1992 film. One of the facets of it that I really enjoyed is it's got this fantastic shadow puppet sequences that give you a bit of a refresher or repeat viewing of the original. And I thought that they added a lot of depth to the enjoyment for this film. I did think this was an enjoyable standalone film, but I really do think that it's one of those ones that if you've got a greater understanding of the older film and how it links, you're going to get much more enjoyment from it. So the plot delves much deeper into this idea that the residents of Cabrini Green use the Candyman legend as a way to cope with their hardships. So it's about racial injustice and persecution of the black residents of the ghetto that was created, whilst the recent gentrification of the ghetto simply resulted in the rich, generally the white people, pushing those residents out of their homes again. I really enjoyed the lead characters, Anthony's descent into madness, the layers of the legend and the callbacks to the original film. I also really liked, and this is something Jeff and I always argue about with horror films. I really like horror films that give you an alternative to this being supernatural. I really like horror films that say you can see this as a supernatural film and you can see this as Actually, it's about the impact of something on your mind or the impact of a social situation and that this is kind of an allegory for how you're feeling about that. But you can watch it both ways. You can say this is a supernatural being or you can just watch it as this is an allegory for racial injustice. And I just find that is a much more interesting story than simply there's a monster and he kills people. Um, And that I thought was here in spades. There was one scene that was I felt was completely out of place, and it's this, it's a scene that anyone who's watched the trailer will have seen, and I feel like it was purposely added for the trailer, where there's five schoolgirls in a school bathroom and they're invoking the Candyman, and it just felt really out of place. The whole film is like you know much deeper level about racial injustice, and this that scene is just you know, that's the slasher stereotype scene that they can put in the trailer to make it more palatable for a wider audience. I think that the co-writer and director Nia DaCosta and co-writers Jordan Peele and Wynne Rosenfeld have done an amazing job of both honouring the original and creating their story, whilst Abdul Mateen is just fantastic as the lead. Hang around for the entire credits because there's more of those beautiful shadow puppets that tell the story of the Candyman. I really liked it. The only thing I will say, and we don't do lots of horror movies on the show because that would be upsetting for some people, but I did really like it. I do want to say that this month has been a really great month for horror. I've seen Censor, The Night House, and I'm sure there's another one that I've seen, but there's been a lot of good horror. 
Yeah, or Malignant, that's it. So Sensor, Malignant, and The Night House all came out this month, along with Candyman. And they're all really good. I really enjoyed them, all for different reasons. This is possibly the least good of all of them, but I still think that this is a really good film. Now, normally I'd ask you a question about your review and go into it, but it's so different to what I'm about to say on it when I get to it. that I'll leave it for now, Phil, but we'll come back to it in a moment. <laughs> Darren. I was conflicted on, on this film because I actually, I did like it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it tied into the original Candyman film in, in a way that I was not expecting at all. The thing about it is um, there's, a, there's a scene where Anthony has done this piece of artwork of a of black man being beaten, presumably by police. And Brianna basically says that it doesn't leave a lot to interpretation. And I thought that's how I felt about this film at the time. Whereas the original Candyman, there was like a, a subtle underlying theme of um, white academics encroaching on on, uh, on black people's uh, you know you know experience for for their own gain. This one was really on the nose about what it was about. But you could argue maybe at this juncture, maybe we we don't need subtlety. Maybe we need things to be basically sort of very blunt and and very out there, because obviously it tied into Black Lives Matters quite a lot it got tied into racial injustice and a lot of the things that it adopted from the first film worked so scarily well i mean the whole the, the Candyman thing of you say his name five times tied in really well with the whole spirit of um of say his name i, I thought i thought i thought that what you know that's that's one of those little things that works so well and also the way it sort of rewrote Candyman almost as if like a um a, a spirit that was ignited by racial injustice and Candyman was kind of the um, the consequences of police brutality or, or general racism that this is like you know the consequence that you that you get because of that I, I was sort of thinking is is Candyman his film when he kills those um, five girls at the school or when he's killing those policemen I, you know are we supposed to be rooting for him is is he meant to be sort of almost like an a heroic antihero figure in, in that sense of it? From the fact that it made the five girls at the school quite sort of dislikable characters, you know, bullies themselves. You know, what what was that meant to be sort of like a chickens coming home to roost type scenario to it? And one of the things that I found really interesting was obviously gentrification played a massive part in this film but and i've heard a lot said about how it sort of a candyman is basically about sort of you know the, the healing process of art and and things like that this, this is where my personal feelings on stuff i think maybe clouded some of my issues with the film because i always find art really exploitative but when i'm talking, when I talk about art i mean like sort of like your sort of like your paintings type sort of exhibition type art and i also find it very elitist very upper class i always feel like it exploits real world problems for it for its own artisans and in this year you know you have the characters of anthony and brianna they're basically you know obviously they're fat trying to you know condemning the gentrification of what's happened in, in this neighborhood but i found it interesting that they themselves as artists well, were sort of are benefiting from mm. that in, in in some way i mean it's interesting but they do all this 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 work and everything, and they're not taking it. But they're basically having it in the sort of you know the the big high rises in the fancy museums in front of all the uh, fashion and, and media and rich artist world. They're not going down to the actual the slums that they claim to be like you know representing and putting on displays down there. It's sort of taking that thing for their own purposes. That that's how I saw it. And there's a scene 
And I don't know, this is a thing, I don't know if this is the intention of, of the makers wearing this, if they were basically sending up art. But there was an interesting scene where um, the, the one nice white character in this film was talking to Brianna about gentrification. And, and obviously, because he's the, the nice white character, he has to be gay because that's what it always is these days. But the thing, what I got about it was, he makes a comment about, all oh, right, what happens around here. And she, like, bolts at him and, and her reaction she's like what what did you say and then it moves on and i got the impression that was that showing her ignorance that she didn't know that she was kind of part of that gentrification or was that meant to be the the, the white guy's character not getting hit that the evil sort of like not understanding the concept of gentrification and i don't know if that was just some, like me bringing my own sort of feelings into that i, I, I was just i was just like unsure of very you know of what they were sort of saying in, in that moment. But generally speaking, I, I did like it. I've got to say, it wasn't a scary film. It was creepy and unsettling. It lacked that sort of the horror of the first film. It, it, it was The horror was completely very mild, I thought. And in, this, in, in that respect, it was a de- departure from the first Candyman film. But generally speaking, I did like it. The silhouette pieces at the end, I thought, were absolutely stunning. Thanks, Darren. I mean, listening to both you and to Phil's comments and analysis of this film, I actually now hate it more than when I started. Um, (laughs) God. Now, I should have known the moment I saw Jordan Peele's name on the credits. Oh, here we go. I should have stayed away. I mean, Peele, like J.J. Abrams, is the master of the good idea coupled with a poor resolution. And that rule is front and centre here. As a result of his meddling, this is totally unlike the first Candyman movie, which is a point you picked up on, Darren. And the first Candyman was a masterclass in horror. I remember when I first watched that and there were people screaming in the audience. It was grim and it was unremitting. And it was made in an age where most horror films were top heavy with unnecessary humour brought on by people like Freddy Krueger. I would say for this updated sequel, pretentious sequel, the candy man could have done with humor anything to relieve the boredom it's so dull it manages to drown its odd good idea the gentrification of the neighborhood the story of the candy man and the past forgotten and it wouldn't happen like this and you know you just look to yourselves for this you know when you have urban legends that you've grown up with that we've all grown up with they're passed on they're not forgotten that's just complete and utter pretentious cobblers None of this glossy nonsense is coherent. The rules of Candyman are broken on a whim. For instance, in that first double murder in the gallery, the male victim never said Candyman in the mirror, yet he's killed. Poorly plotted script doesn't cut it, and then the filmmakers compound the error by having lead characters who would not have been out of place in the awful Malcolm and Marie. I mean, anybody (laughs) could like that main character, for God's sake. I mean, I'd disempower him. Uh, Then you have a director in Nia Costa who doesn't understand the genre. Her set pieces, yeah, they look stylish, they look glossy, but they take you out of the moment with flashy camera work and editing and pullbacks. Horror, especially in Candyman, should be visceral. And this sums it up the best. The original Candyman is still an 18. This is a 15. It's a kid's film. And again, (laughs) like his pretentious Twilight Zone series, Peel is very keen on making this socially relevant. After this, Nia DaCosta is going to have to make a Marvel movie. And I can think of no better punishment, really. 
It's oh, worse dear. than saying Jordan Peele five times when looking in the mirror. <laughs> Actually, in, on reflection, that is a pretty scary thing. Maybe I'll end it there, but no, it's not for me. I was going to say, though, the, the 18 thing, I don't think that's relevant in this day and age, is it? Like, how many films get 18 certificates? Candyman nowadays? is still an 18 in this day and age. On yeah, but, but how many horror films made by studios that want to make some money at the cinema put out 18 rating, rated horror films? Malignant was one. How much money did it make, though? I bet you Candyman made more money than it. <laughs> Yeah, can yeah, Candyman had more marketing, and, and and that's fair. But it's it's them. What do you want to do? I guess in America it has less influence than here. So films like this and Malignant got the same certificate. They got R rated in America, whereas here we got that fifteen eighteen distinction. You raise an interesting point. I don't think that's really relevant because America is their main market for horror films. Yeah, it's an R rival R rival way there, isn't it? Yeah. But here, yeah, okay, they split the difference down. If it gets an 18 certificate in this country, it ain't going to make that much money. It will lose. It will lose money on it. And to be honest, I'd make this an 18 just to save some people between the ages of 15 and 18 <laughs> from having to put up with this twaddle. But, so, Graham, you going to watch it? No. <laughs> I just explained to you it's not scary, right? Yeah, I think this is a group action now. Oh, it's a thriller. <laughs> it's a comedy. Don't worry. Uh, da- Darren, do you think that um, Graham should watch it? But I personally don't think it is a scary movie. I, I, I don't think it is. It's, it's a violent one in places. Nothing will freak me out more than in the original Candyman, where he basically kills the guy and guts him from behind the desk and just appears. Yeah, uh, that, that, yeah there's, there's nothing yeah. like that. This, this is yeah. Yeah. brilliant. <laughs> On the other hand, Branch just watched Malignant. It's it's fine. Yeah, I actually saw the trailer for Malignant. So when I went to see Old. It, it was very late at night, and they had trailers for all sorts of horrible sorts of horror movies. And I, the bloody thing just freaked me out, just the trailer. <laughs> oh, my God. So but, no, nothing said here has persuaded me to watch it. What about you, listener of the month, Tom? One you could perhaps watch? It's alive. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Okay, let's forget about all this horror and move on to our next review, Reminiscence. You're going on a journey. A journey through memory. All you have to do is follow my voice. We're closed. I know, I'm sorry it's late. We have time for one more job. When the waters began to rise and war broke out, nostalgia became a way of life. There wasn't a lot to look forward to. So people began looking back. Nothing is more addictive than the past. No, 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 put me back. Put me back. I understand. From co-creator of Westworld TV series comes Reminiscence, a science fiction love story. Miami in the near future is an almost unbearable place to live. Climate change has resulted in much of the city becoming flooded. And because of the heat being so intense, people go about their lives at night. 
One of the ways to escape this hell is through the memory tanks, where you can immerse yourself in memories and relive happier times. The owner of one such tank is military veteran Nick Bannister, Hugh Jackman. Life is as good as it can be for Nick in this tough environment. Then the beautiful May, Rebecca Ferguson, walks into his life looking initially for some lost keys. However, she keeps coming back and eventually Nick falls in love with her, a romance which abruptly ends when she disappears. He sets out to find her, but just who was May and what was the real reason for her to enter his life? Jeff, did the filmmakers manage to make a believable dystopian future with a romantic heart? Well, I'm the downer this month, aren't I? Uh, not really, <laughs> although I'd give it a B-plus for effort, if I'm being positive. I mean, it can best be described as the pale imitation of Blade Runner. This what? is a movie which holds... What do you mean, what? <laughs> this is a movie which holds its downbeat, futuristic credentials on its sleeve with effective world-building and, like Blade Runner, looks back in style to the classic films of the 1940s. You think back on Blade Runner, Graham, it went 40 years forward, but used the style of 40 years past to bring us into it. That's why Blade Runner worked. That's why 2040, Blade Runner 2046 was shit, because it ignored that rule. Um, so. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> Got the title of the film wrong as well. Oh, yeah. Did I? What was it? <laughs> Twenty forty nine. Yeah, sorry. Pay attention, Jeff. Yeah, I knocked three years off for good behaviour. If Blade Runner had elements of the Maltese Falcon, and in part you could almost see Blade Runner as part remake of that movie, then in many ways this reminiscence is an updating of Bill My Gallows High, the classic Robert Mitchum movie. But there are also many references to other science fiction classics like Dark City, another noir feature and even Escape from New York. With all these elements and callbacks, it's unsurprising to learn it works in moments, but not as a whole. The problem is, none of these moments come early in the movie. Writer-director Lisa Joy adds no joy to the first half. Get that one there. It lacks passion. That is evident in many of its performances. Only Tandy Newton makes a real impression and she's worked with Joy on Westworld, so I guess she knows how to pitch a performance. Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson take a long time to bring you into their characters, making the first half seem even more ponderous and slow. Only in the second half, as the mystery deepens, do their characters captivate, and moments like a fight in the half-submerged building resonate. However, it ultimately falls apart as Joy is not willing to fully bathe in noir culture. The real ending and this is a spoiler alert, so please jump forward a couple of minutes if you haven't seen the film. The real ending should have shown Ferguson to have been a femme fatale and the evil brains behind the whole scheme. That way, the ending as shown would have had a real emotional depth, especially if Jackman's character repeated those moments when he believed they were in love. Overall, it looks good and has wow factor moments in the second half. But ultimately, this movie is as flawed as a film noir male hero. Darren. The day after I saw this film, I, I tried to write a few bullet points, which I, I always do just to keep my thoughts, you know, fresh from the, from the film. And I actually sat for ages trying to come up with what I wanted to say about this film. And I was really struggling. And I think it's because 
this film left such a little impression on me. And just to show how little, I actually had to look up on Wikipedia to remind myself of how the film actually ended because I realised that I'd completely forgotten. <laughs> this is just the day after I'd seen it. This film is fine. Sometimes fines are okay. You know, it's, I was sat in the cinema. I was never actually bored by this film, but I never actually got excited about it. I, I, I like the story and the mystery. I appreciated some of the twists and things, but the thing about it was that the film noir element, I actually really liked, and it was fun spotting all the, all the little cliches of film noir that it brought into the film, like the sort of, you know, the rich gang lords who are basically sort of controlling everything, the femme fatale, the, um, the, the, the sassy sidekick who is the one who actually does all the work and actually saves him, the, the working with the police. But the problem with this film is it's so much of that. And in fact, um, Jeff's review, illustrates this because he's, he's mentioned so many other films in talking about it this film had no sort of identity of its own you know it wasn't like Blade Runner or Strange Days which I actually which is another film that this reminded me of but what they did great was they took those sort of elements but felt like a brand new movie in there this one just felt like oh we're taking a film noir and we put it into this futuristic thing and um, all, all, all the floods are up so that's that's basically our world building sort of thing, and it just sort of it, it was just you know the, the technology on, on on display here. It had a little bit of a sort of subtext about people not being able to uh, give up on the on the past and things like that, but it didn't really sort of go all in on on those elements. The technology seemed to be more of a little sort of gimmick to actually um, move the plot along and for them to find the clues and everything. And so it was just, again, it was fine. Um, I thought Rebecca Ferguson had a lot of noir presence in there. Fadia Newton, I, I, I actually thought that she was, she should have been the main character because I, I thought she was great at it. Mm. Hugh Jackman was just, and I know this is a cliche to say this, but Hugh Jackman was just Hugh Jackman. It was just him reading out the, the lines in his voice. There was no distinct personality in this film, when when I saw him, he, you know, you see you see a film with somebody like Tom Hanks, and every film he does, it's Tom Hanks there, but it's a completely different personality every time he's doing this. With this, it was just here's Hugh Jackman. It's the personality that he he, he normally does. So maybe a, a, a better actor in in the lead role would have brought something more to it. Again, this this film, it was okay, perfectly serviceable, but it wasn't a film that sort of lingered. On, on to me. I, I will be perfectly honest. This, if I hadn't had to do a review for this film, this is the sort of film that some, because I always keep a log of all the films I watch at the cinema. And sometimes I look at a film and I think, what was that? And I have to uh, look it up to, to, to remind myself of what it was. And I'm pretty sure that a month after seeing this, if I saw this um, reminiscence in my list, I'd actually have to go and remind myself what the film was. It left that little impression on me. But again, it, it was fine when I watched it. Uh, you mentioned Strange Days there, and uh, that's a comparison I'd made. Strange Days had a grungy quality to it, whereas this had a gloss to it. Mm. Again, it's another thing that the the aesthetic of this film, it, again, just, just left nothing on me. You know, it just, I, I can't even remember the, the, the actual, what the, what the film actually looked like. Aside from the fact that it basically tried to be, be very sort of noirish in, in places, it, it just washed over me. You know, whereas where Strange Days, I don't think I've seen Strange Days for about 10 years. 
And yet I can remember the grunginess of it, how it felt and colours on the New Year's Eve and, and things like that. I can remember so much more about this film. And this one, I'm, I'm, it's already faded from my mind. I can't even remember what this sort of film looked like. Except, except, except Rebecca Ferguson in that blue dress. <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, that's one thing I can't remember. Graham, what do you remember? So I thought it was an interesting science fiction sort of gumshoe mashup. Some wonderful stunning concepts that really never delivered on their promise. Seriously, who would go to all this trouble to cover up a murder and a kidnapping at the end of the world? Once you see through the ruse and overly convoluted con, it, it's all too complex. I mean, the actors were very engaging. I thought Hugh Jackman was the hardened ex-Marine Nick Bannister, who's been in the military but doesn't seem to be very good at fighting. He is, however, wonderfully engaging in his usual Hugh Jackman shambling, disinterested way. I really liked his character and his motivations, but his final choice in this film left me a bit cold. And Rebecca Ferguson as May as the wonderful, enigmatic and super skinny nightclub torch singer with a past was great. And Tandy Newton, as everybody said, is wonderful as usual uh, as the unrequited love interest and sidekick. And yeah, I, I would have liked to see more of her. I mean, the story is, well, it's set up well. It just seems to go nowhere. The lighting and the set and the interior of Jackman's office were just wonderful. As was the way they actually remembered memories and the way they portrayed those inside that sort of curtained off area was just great. However, the action outside that building, the the visuals just took a dive off a cliff for me. I was very disappointed and, and annoyed by this movie. I mean, it had great potential, but even with all this star power, it just never seemed to deliver. I find this an emotionless struggle of a movie. I will remember this as a four out of 10 movie. Sorry, Logan. So no joy for you then? No joy for me, despite Lisa Joy directing it, yeah. Phil? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm tempted to throw my notes out of the window and just try and respond to some of the comments because a lot of things that you said, like all of you have said, that sort of really resonate with me. But as I don't want to ramble, I'm going to stick to my notes. <laughs> um, so you mentioned it comes from Lisa Joy, who's the co-creator of Westworld. As with Westworld, the story structure is less than straightforward. She thinks uh, she it's a really convoluted, you know, plot and story, and it kind of this whole thing of it focusing on memories and how we recall events and our perception of those events, and she uses that to wrong foot us and create twists mm. that you know those twists shouldn't really be there. It's just the way that we recall things, and you get a part of a story. You know, and it's kind of drip-fed along. The most striking thing wasn't that structure of how she told the story, but the imagery and the tone. And I don't like to say this, but I'm going to agree with Jeff on this. Oh, oh, <sighs> he was getting through. The, the lead, the whole lead character, which Jackman portrays, and the whole story is just, it's all like a black and white film noir, mm. um, but it's set in a dystopian future. So, you, you know, Jackman's character has the nobleness of Humphrey Bogart, and you've mentioned a few of his films, Jeff. And the mystery kind of unravels like a Raymond Chandler tale. So, Graham, you were sort of saying about how it's ridiculously convoluted and complicated. Mm. Why on earth would it be like that? And that's, like, to me, the whole, I'm going to do this Raymond Chandler story because his stories were less than straightforward. And I think there's that quote about how... 
there was one of his um was it the the big sleep or something where even he wasn't sure that it made sense how it ended yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they phoned Chandler up who was, who was drunk when he wrote it. Yeah. I really, really wanted to like it because I love those types of films. I love mm. the film noir. I love that it's um, an original science fiction film. But I also do agree with a lot of what everyone says. So I love Hugh Jackman. I think he epitomises old-fashioned film star and I thought he did sell this sort of wounded and noble soldier. Rebecca Ferguson is always amazing. And uh, her playing a woman who can transfix any man. I mean, yeah, fine. <laughs> Sold. Um, and their chemistry is is palpable. And I thought the imagery was really beautiful. Like the city half underwater, the, that shot of the piano sinking and the ray of light, light coming through. Yeah, that through was the, good, yeah. There's a tower that's just in the sea, so randomly, because it looks beautiful in this dystopian future. And to agree with Jeff, it you know it reminds me of Blade Runner. And the other film I throw out there is Inception. Yeah, this whole thing in Inception about how we remember things and how we sort of change the, our recollection of things to sort of protect ourselves. That's all kind of from there, and obviously. Lisa Joy works with uh, Christopher Nolan's brother. Did he have a hand in the Inception? I can't they're, remember. They're married, aren't they? Okay. Well, Christopher Nolan's sister-in-law, she's married to Jonathan Nolan. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, and, and they, they coded uh, Westworld together, didn't they? Um, yeah. So you, you've all mentioned the faults, though. The thing that I don't think anyone mentioned is I think there's quite a lot of reliance on the narration Ooh. track from Jackman. Yeah, and that can be frustrating in films. It was frustrating to me in this that it kind of filled in the gaps and you know the story is kind of about love and nobility and that's what Nick believes in and in our cynical world that's going to put a lot of people off fortunately I'm a complete sucker for that sort of thing <laughs> I, and I you know I enjoyed that I do agree with what everyone said it doesn't grip you and you're not going to necessarily remember it in a year or so but I want to like just commend the fact that it's an original science fiction yes, film. Yeah. It's got beautiful images and it's, and it's an old fashioned film noir sort of style. I just really wish it was better. It's got lots of really good elements. It just doesn't coalesce as a great whole. Yeah. Great yeah. idea. Bad execution. Yeah. Well, it, it just cop uh, as I said, it copped out on noir in the end. Mm. Anyway, we got Neil. Let's go to pre-recorded Neil. Well, great cast. Interesting storyline of a man desperately seeking the woman of his dreams, literally and figuratively, something real in a dystopian future. And the twist, I'll give it, it was interesting. And the scenery and look of the film was gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. Director Lisa Joy and cinematographer Paul Cameron deserve credit for that. Paul Cameron actually has a huge body of work, including Man on Fire, collateral deja vu and a whole load of others in it shows i don't think it's as bad as the critics made out the scenery alone is worth the watch but i struggled with it despite the cast such a shame I, I kind of felt for hugh jackman's character desperately hanging on to the only images available of a woman he fell in love with but it just wasn't done very well and it's dull thoroughly disappointing movie it wasn't done very well there is i'm sure there is a good film in there but i just didn't like it i'm sorry well neil i wish i thought of that but <laughs> thank you for saying that so 
Reminiscence is a bit of an oddity, and it's now available on VOD. Now, just before we move on, we have some breaking film news. Nobody ever writes in about this slot, but I'm sure everybody <laughs> looks forward to it. Let's go to the breaking news. So, firstly, two bits of info on the new James Bond film, No Time to Die. Apparently, Bond was so inactive during lockdown, they almost changed the title to No Time to Diet. <laughs> Secondly, there's a cut scene from the film which hopefully will make it on the Blu-ray. Daniel Craig as James Bond walks into a bar and sees that none other than Michael J. Fox as the bartender. Bond raises his hand and says, I'll have a martini, please. Oh, that is sick. That is sick. (laughs) I've got to say, it took me a while, but that's outrageous. (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to hell for that? And finally... Recent conference between some stars in America, there was Stallone, Van Damme, and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they're in a Zoom conference, and Stallone says, I can't do the accent, so I'll do it in a Welsh accent, because that's where they all wish they were. Um, I'm making a movie about composers in which I'm playing Vivaldi. Van Damme says, I'll be Mozart. And Arnie says, cut it out, guys. I'm not saying it. Oh, God, I'll be back. Oh. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? And after that short break, let's return to our normal review schedule <laughs> with Marvel's Feng Shui. Sorry, I mean Shang Shei and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I've said it so wrong so often, I can't re- repeat the bloody proper name now. Throughout my life. The Ten Rings gave our family power. If you want them to be yours one day, you have to show me you are strong enough to carry them. You are a product of all who came before you. The legacy of your family. You are your mother. And whether you like it or not, you are also your father. Maybe you're just a criminal who murders people. Be careful how you speak to me, boy. Is this what you wanted? Shang-Chi is the son of powerful warlord Zhu Wenwu, played by Tony Lung. A man who has lived thousands of years thanks to the power of the mystical Ten Rings. However, when Zhu falls in love, he gives up that power to live in peace with his wife and two children. That life is destroyed when his wife is killed by some of Zhu's former enemies. Consumed with grief and a desire for revenge, Zhu goes back to his old ways and trains his children to be assassins. Chang-Chi, Simu Lu eventually changes the path of his life, escapes his father's way, and is living a quiet life in San Francisco. Ten years later, Chang Chi, or Sean, as his friends call him, must confront his buried past when some of his father's men come after him for a pendant his mother gave him, which holds the key to great power. Darren, this is a rather different type of film from Marvel. Does this change in approach work? 
It, it did, and, and to be honest, I don't think it's that much of a departure from what Marvel have been doing for a while now, because they've been taking films in different settings, like uh, Black Panther in Africa, like obviously the uh, the cosmic uh, movies, Doctor Strange had a magic appeal. They're broadening out and taking different settings and styles, but adopting the actual Marvel humour in there and the Marvel type of storyline that they like to tell. This one is in the tradition of Marvel Comics because their universe has, even though it's all set in one place, it has lots and lots of different genres. Chanchi was clearly originally a character called Master of Kung Fu from the 70s. And I think they've done a great job with this. The thing that they've really excelled with is that they have taken the concept of a Hong Kong or Chinese movie and taken the concept of martial arts and just absolutely gone with it and unlike a certain other film that we reviewed this one really has some absolutely (laughs) outstanding martial arts scenes there are there are scenes that that, that, like for example the scene on the bus which is a really long scene but it's so spectacular and built so well and it also follows the action it's absolutely breathtaking it's so well choreographed it reminds me of some of the uh, the jackie chan stuff that was doing back in the day. And that's mm. a real compliment because that is some of, if you ever watch Jackie Chan movies, that is some of the most breathtaking, ballet-like in, in its splendor action scenes. And that's what this does here. It follows the action so well. And just when you think you've sort of like, oh, oh wow, that's, you know, that's an amazing move. Five seconds later, there's an, there's a bit another exchange, which is even better. I thought it was absolutely outstanding. And one of the scenes that I really loved as well was with the first scene where you sort of get the, uh, the origin story about Shang-Chi's parents. They've done it in basically a, a Hong Kong magical style, which if, if you're a fan of like the Hong Kong type movies that, that I am, you'll really appreciate how it adopts that sort of style. I, I was absolutely completely in, impressed by it, really, really blown away. It's sort of, the movies feel different, but you You've still got all the Marvel fun. You've got the uh, the humor. I mean, Aqua, Aquafina I thought was absolutely uh, amazing in this. Absolutely so hysterical. One of the things I really especially like was that uh, that sort of was was different from a, a lot of the Marvel origin stories. Is this had a really working class feel to it? It, it was, uh, you know, you were following a character who was parking cars in, in a hotel as opposed to being like a, a millionaire genius or a um, a, a millionaire genius um, surgeon. Or the god from space. Of, of, yeah. the, you know, the world, he's, he's, he's all upper, upper class people. This was like, you know, it, aside from Peter Parker, this was like, you know, one of the, uh, you know, the only working class guys that, that we've got in, in uh, this genre. And, and I thought it, it was great. It was, and it was just a sort of great story. Uh, there was so much fun to hear. Ben Kingsley came, uh, you know, re- reprised his, his role and sort of the, you know, corrected a few, a few of the, uh, the issues that people have with, with his, his Mandarin uh, storyline when people were annoyed that they made a Mandarin a comedy figure. But the twist that they had in it was what was a real Mandarin out there, which I thought was great. But there was some really, you know, great stuff in it. The thing that got, that got me about it, and I just think that the finale got a little weak there was a little bit too much mm. going on. And while they've done this before, in, if I remember back to Black Panther, you had base in the finale, you had three different battles going on. And they did a really good job of keeping you switching from one to the other in a way that you knew what was going on. And in this one, I found myself losing track of who was doing what and why. 
And one of the things that really mm. surprised me was that you have this um, wonderful spectacle of this magical, colourful dragon and this giant demon. But it was shot in such a way that, and it was you know so so close up to it that a lot of the time you couldn't see what was going on, and that was very unlike Marvel because they're normally really sort of proud mm. of the spectacle that they found and and frame everything so that you almost like you're reading a comic book so you can see everything going on. That seemed a strange decision that they made, and I also have to say, watching it, and I'll have, I'll have to watch this again when it comes up on Disney Plus. How Chan Chi won, first of all, the fight with his father, and then how he defeated the demon. It kind of drifted on me how he'd actually won. There was no cleverness to the to the victory. Normally there's some sort of trick that the hero will pull. And this one it just seemed to be mm. that he just managed to get a shot in at the end that killed him. But there didn't seem to be any build or cleverness to that. And for me, that brought it down a bit. Even with that, I really enjoyed it. Obviously, there were setting scenes for for later movies in in there i'm I'm pretty sure that a lot of the stuff that we got in there is gonna go right into the eternals and there was one or two little sort of i thought little teasers with um when you when you went to the fight club and there was one there with the abomination and when they went into the uh, the the portal and the left i was trying to see what was what we were going into to me it looked like some sort of base or maybe a holding cell so I, i was wondering if this is actually going to lead into either the dark avengers or the the Thunderbolts, which is another, which is Marvel's kind of version of the Suicide Squad. So I, I was quite, quite intrigued by little nerdy things like that. One of the most interesting stories in films for me, you know, has been what was Marvel going to do in this space? After losing um, uh, Iron Man and Captain America, you know, were they going to be able to bring in characters which have that same sort of impact? It's going to be gayer in that people are going to take to, and on the strength of this, I th- I think Marvel are really going to be here for a long time because I think they're obviously building up to what is going to be like the second generation of Avengers, and if they're making films like this with new characters, we're going to have a great time. If you're a Marvel fan, sorry, Jeff. Thanks for cheering me up there, Darren. Um, <laughs> although I was fascinated by the concept of the working class hero there, which is something I hadn't made the connection of. And as you said it, and I was thinking it through, I thought, yep, that really makes sense. Phil? Yeah, I, I love this film. I, and I, I, one of the things that probably helped me love it more is I watched this on opening day with my son. So it's the first Marvel film at the cinema with my son. Um, he's He's been watching all of the other films with me on Disney Plus and all the sort of TV series and stuff. And this was like, we can finally go and watch a film on opening day. He loved it. I loved it. I went went to see it again a couple of days later with my wife as well. I just hope that Marvel just keep on doing this. I I think Darren really sort of hit the nail on the head there at the end. I felt that Black Widow was quite low-key, but this, for me, was where the Marvel Cinematic Universe Phase 4 it feels like it really explodes out of the blocks with Shang-Chi. I thought there were quite a few key similarities with Black Widow. It focuses on family. It's got some really fantastic humour. I'm interested in whether this family focus is kind of, you know, the theme for these opening films because the trailer for The Eternals, which I have seen, certainly looks like it's about family, but not necessarily, you know, uh, you know blood ties. But I felt the uniqueness here was that it focused on the mystical sort of realm of Marvel and, and, and martial arts. I really love that the plot 
hewed towards this magical, mystical corner. Obviously, Wong features in this film. Doctor Strange seems like he's going to feature quite strongly in Phase 4. And you know, needless to say, that means the CGI teams get to, to, to let their imaginations run wild. When they were de- depicting ta- Tallow and its denizens, like there was a scene where they just, when they first go into that magical city, that made me think of kind of like, it's like it was like, my son thought it was like Pokemon and I thought it was like Final Fantasy sort of film, uh, a game. So obviously that's our, our, our sort, of, sort of takes on it, you know, based on what we grew up with and stuff. But, you know, this whole focus on families, you know, your, the family you're born with versus the family that you make. Um, I really liked that Wenwu is not a clear-cut villain. He's got lots of layers and, and, and a character. There's reasons for the way that he behaves. I thought Tony Leung was brilliant. And the relationships between him and his children were really complex and interesting. Darren mentioned the relationship between Shang-Chi and Katie and how great Aquafina was. They were just so much fun. And I thought all of that you know, really felt like it's... I know Jeff kind of you know, joked about Nia DaCosta's getting, you know, getting penance by going to a Marvel film. But, you know, here they've picked Destin Daniel Cretton, I think is, you pronounce his name. And he's most famous for Short Term 12, which is an intimate film about relationships. And I really thought that that came through here. You know, they're picking these kind of young upcoming directors who've like sort of had a breakout indie film. They're working within a framework, but their touch does get, you know, there. And I thought the relationships really came through here. Darren's mentioned it again, and, and I'm going to slate Snake Eyes again, but how good were the martial arts fit, uh, bits in this film? They were amazing. I'm going to say that the only drawback was that bus sequence, which Darren mentioned. It's so good. I'm not sure that anything else lived up to it after that. <laughs> it is. I just thought it was jaw-droppingly good. It was just fantastic. And, yeah, I think that the scaffold sequence was pretty fun too, Darren's mentioned this as well, but the CGI fest at the end, which a lot of superhero films end up being, they just don't cut that bus sequence. I I, I could watch that on repeat. It was just so good. It's funny. Aquafina and Simu Liu are a great couple. There's some cameo performances. It's been mentioned, but, you know, there's a a, a, a bit part character from a previous film who comes back, and he's hilarious. Tony Lung's brilliant. Simu Liu, I mean, I've never seen him in anything before. He was just fantastic. I can see him, you know, really being a big part of the MCU. And yeah, I mean, I loved it. If you're invested in the MCU, you're going to just love it. It's amazing. If you're not, you know, it's another well-oiled Marvel machine. And it seems that some people think that that's a reason to not like it these days. But it's just lots and lots of fun can't even think who you're talking about, Phil. Um, <laughs> right, let's go over to pre-recorded Neil. Marvel does it again, an entertaining story of a slacker that's actually a martial arts expert. Simon Liu does well in his first rig role, although he has had several credits for stunt work, which I never knew. Um, a likeable chap who can do his own stunts. Perfect Marvel character. I don't know the comics, so this just is a view from a blank slate. The Marvel formula rolls on, although using Aquafina as humour is a bit 
insulting and there's a neat tie-in with Doctor Strange films and the Iron Man 3. Nice to see Trevor Slattery again. And it all works. It always does. But just once I'd like to see Marvel slash Disney break free of that 12A rating restriction. There's a battle at the end of the film and at, at the end of it we cut to loads of extras lying around playing dead. They don't even look dead at all. Like one of those recreation events, Civil War reenactments type of thing. I'm sure fans of the comics will be delighted with the film version, but for me, I'm finding the formula a little wearisome. Sure, it's entertaining, it's funny, there's fighting, there's good storyline, it'll make money, especially in China, and it keeps to the Marvel formula. I'd just like to see it cut free from that 12A Disney-fied restrictions. But am I asking too much? I, I enjoyed it and should enjoy it for what it is. Stage four rolls on. Thank you for that, Neil. A good review. Just remember, though, two wongs don't make a right. Okay. Oh, good grief. <laughs> After that terrible joke. Well, yeah, I, like everybody, I thought this was really, really good. I mean, I did like the fact that the Western culture is now the comedy sidekick as the new star rises in the East. This was a very Asian film that made it much, much more enjoyable and fun and different for western eyes after the so-so black widow movie i mean i was a little worried about a new solo superhero movie from marvel um, i should have had more faith really this is a good movie uh, very good in fact not great but very good iron fist version 2.0 now uh, being played by an asian actor uh, Simulu. And his sidekick, Katie, played by Aquafina, who reused her wacky sidekick performance from Crazy Rich Asians. Make a great team, as everybody said. I like the cyclical nature of the uh, the way it was plotted. A little bit of history, then some of the story, then multiple flashbacks to fill out the narrative. And then at the end, the direction forward is laid out for the characters. It's, it was just so well done. I liked all the Asian symbolism, the water everywhere, and then the, the wind and the leaves and things like that. Very crouching tiger, hidden dragon. Fight scenes were really, really good. I mean, incredible. And again, we had this thing where the camera flows with the characters. Not only are the characters fighting the... As, as Phil mentioned, the, the character is fighting the people in the bus, but his sidekick has got to get to drive the bus because the you know there's lots of peril there. And then the environment is also fighting them, and they're getting knocked out of windows and trying to get back on the bus and avoid cars coming the other way. Proper, well done fight scenes, and the choreography was just great. Special shout out for Liverpool's finest working actor, Terence Slattery. Yep, great performance in this movie. Friend to a magical creature, football coach. Touching moment when he remembers how he got into acting because of the monkey actors from Planet <laughs> of the Apes. That just made me roar when I watched that. It was just so funny. Really well done, Marvel. This is a film that I was worried they'd drop the ball on. And it's For me, I gave it a, a real solid six and a half. Yeah, I thought it was great. Listeners, <laughs> you know me. <laughs> yeah, we do. An honest and fair reviewer. I tell it like it is. And you, you've heard the jibes I've had to put up with as we've gone through this review. And when it comes to Marvel, I'm sometimes too honest for my fellow <laughs> reviewers. 
and I'm not a cult member, and I said cult, Graham. Uh, yeah, that's how you spelled it in the notes. <laughs> however, when a film earns its status as really good, I'm usually the first to shout it out. And I will say that Feng Shui in the Ten Circles is the best Marvel movies since the excellent Avengers Infinity Wars. Which Marvel I love that he Marvel. refuses to say any Marvel film title correctly. <laughs> <laughs> which Marvel then spoiled by bringing them all back. In all honesty, this latest feature is confident in its storytelling, its character development, excellent action sequences, and it brings aspects of Asian culture to a wider audience. Now, I was worried when this started. It felt a bit pretentious to have 10 minutes of subtitles for a non-existent language. But that aside, this proves that even my worries about American scriptwriter Dave Callahan were unfounded. Although the stain on my soul that is America, the motion picture will last a long time. Unlike that movie, which still hasn't been flushed yet. Here, the strong characterizations make this work brought to life by an excellent cast. And it's great to see Ben Kingsley back as Trevor. Love the scarf, Trev. <laughs> I also love the fact that they use an every-person character to draw us into the fantasy of the movie, played by Aquafina. Her discoveries and stories learned become ours. Also great is that her and Shang-Chi are friends without romance throughout the movie. In short, this is one of the best action films of the year, and with this and Infinity Wars, it proves that Marvel, like a broken clock, can be right twice a day. <laughs> so, I loved it, guys. Possibly in my films of the year. Wow. There we go. Well, I think, um, is there some way to bottle this moment? <laughs> <laughs> Jeff likes a Marvel film. Yeah, even Darren's gone quiet on that one. Yeah. I'll t- tell you what, the next step will be Jeff likes a Marvel film and remembers its title and says it correctly. <laughs> yeah, the next one is quite easy, Eternals. I can remember that. I can see that's becoming Infernals pretty quickly, yeah. You said it, not me. <laughs> so, a lot of positivity about that one from all of us. Currently only showing in cinemas. Thank you, Disney. Well, you got that one right. Um, 45 day release window means you don't have too long to wait no but you know they they learned their lesson is it good enough to be film of the month darren okay so taking that cue what has everyone selected for their film of the month neil i'd love to say it was cop shop should really be shang chi because you know it's marvel it's perfect and all that blah but no i'm gonna go with cop shop graham I'd also go for Cop Shop. I thought it was brilliant. The bloody... Um, the, the Gerard. Frank and the and Gerard. The Frank. <laughs> yeah. Jeff. Well, for Phil, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Bloody... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Darren? I'm also going to go for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Phil, what's yours? Well, I get a swing vote. I think uh, Shang-Chi takes this one easily this month. Wow. It's always good to be on the winning side. (laughs) (laughs) So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Uh, It looks like Neil might be missing the next show as his golf tour is going so well. Apparently, he's been spotted out on the new Taliban golf course in Afghanistan, playing around with his new best mate, Terry Wrist. (laughs) Oh, God, no. 
Is there a nation you haven't offended in one of these shows, Jeff? And just in case anyone is listening in Afghanistan and thinking of reprisals, I had nothing to do with that joke. <laughs> yes, I'd like to distance myself from the previous remarks of our uh, reviewer, Jeff. And to everyone else, thank you for listening and goodbye. And don't forget that the latest episode of Darren's Dash is coming soon.